Good morning. My name is Karina, and I bring you today's second Bible reading. It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thank you. Thank you, Karina. Now, if you've got one of the news, uh, newsletters on the inside, there's an outline there. You might find that helpful as we work through this. It's a different type of talk in that we're considering a topic, a theme. Often as a church, what we like to do is we'll work through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But for this series, we've been thinking about topics, themes, and we're trying to see what the whole Bible has to say about that. And of course, today is relevant. Uh, how do we believe the Bible? But let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, as we come to the Bible, help us to see it for what it is, that indeed the words of God from you to us to speak of the things we need to know for life and salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question today is a very important question and a question we should all be able to answer, especially if we call ourselves a Christian. We should be able to answer this question. And it's not an easy question to answer, in fact, because how do you believe a book that is so old, 2,000 years? Well, firstly, the Bible is not exactly 2,000 years old. It's, in fact, a collection of 66 books gathered together like a library of at least 40 different authors written over about a 1,500-year period. And the latest of these books is just under 2,000 years old. So it's a collection of books. And so how do you believe it? If you call yourself a Christian, how do you believe? How do you come about recognizing that this is what you must believe? Because Christians, what do they do? They read it. They meditate on it. It's the biggest selling book in all of history. About five billion copies of the Bible have been sold. At least portions of the Bible have been translated into over 3,300 languages. It's been studied for thousands of years, written about, PhDs done of it, Colleges established just to study the Bible. It's been smuggled into countries. It's been banned. It's put into music. People have also been killed protecting it, this book. But how do you come around believing it? Why would Christians, this is an important question, isn't it? Why would Christians stake their lives on the words of this book? To allow this book to dictate how we are to live. To allow this book dictate our livelihoods and, and our well-being. And we turn to this book, don't we? In times of grief, in times of sorrow, even like now in our church family, where do we, where do we turn? We, we turn to the Bible. In times of joy, where we turn for understanding, what, well, we come to the Bible. In times of despair, where do we go for words of hope? We come to the Bible. But, but why? Why do we do that? Not only that, the Bible, in fact, makes statements about humanity, about morality, about ethics, about how we are to see this world, about controversial topics like gender and sexuality. It talks even about the afterlife, but why do we trust it? How could we trust it? How do you believe it? I remember as a younger man, I was asked by someone, or I was told by someone, 
I don't need a Bible. I don't need a book to tell me how to live. It's childish. It's immature if you need a book to tell you how to live. What do you say? How do you respond to that? Well, how have Christians tried to answer this question? It's interesting just to reflect on that. How have you tried to answer that question? Well, I believe the Bible because it's the Word of God. That's what we say, don't we? But how do you know it's the Word of God? Well, the Bible tells me it's the Word of God. But how do you know that's true? How can you trust it? Well, the Bible says it's true. Now, if you've done a bit of philosophy, you can see that, that that's a very interesting way of arguing a point. It's what they call a circular argument. You're asserting the fact, the proof, whatever, by itself. The Bible is used to affirm itself. And, and philosophers would say, well, that's a logical fallacy. It's a logical fallacy, and so that should absolutely destroy the bedrock, the foundation of your faith. You trust the Bible, but you're using the Bible to affirm itself. How can you trust it? It's like you know the, the Jenga game, the blocks of wood. You stack them up like a little tower. It's like you pull out the bottom piece and everything comes tumbling down. That's what people think you've done to, by using the Bible to affirm itself. It's a logical fallacy. But how do you believe the Bible? That it is the Word of God. Well, you see, if the Bible is really the Word of God, then it has to be circular. It has to be self-affirming. It can't be any other way. In fact, it has to be that way for it to be coherent. Because instead, if the answer is, I believe the Bible because some professor told me I can believe the Bible, or someone else says I can believe it, or some other book says I can believe it, then what that does is it relegates the authority of the Bible to something else. It's diminished its own authority. But if the Bible is really the Word of God, it has to be circular, it has to be self-affirming. And so it's not a knockdown argument. In fact, in every worldview, in every worldview of seeing the world, it all needs to be self-affirming at some point. For example, the atheist says, I believe that there is no God. Why do you believe there is no God? Because there is no such thing as God. That is also a self-affirming argument. And so how does anyone come to believe the Bible then? It is a circular argument. We have to accept that. But it has to be that way. How does anyone come on to believing it? Well, I'd like you to picture it like this. So I thought about this illustration. I think it works, but you let me know at the end. It's a bit like a merry-go-round. You know, the carousel, you, you, you remember that as kids? You jump on, the horses go up and down, it goes around and around. Well, it's like those on the ride, they actually get to enjoy it when you're on the ride itself, when you're on the merry-go-round. But you can also be a bystander, you know, just like the, the boring parent who, who are holding all the show bags. They're just watching from the distance. The kids are on it, they're having fun. Well, in a sense, it's sort of like how it is with the Bible. We can remain a bystander and just watch the fun. Watch it take place in front of us. In fact, we can be quite critical. We can just watch with a critical eye. We say, that's not fun, and we throw rocks at it. We criticize it. That's not fun at all. But how do you know what it's like? The only way to know what it's like on the merry-go-round is to jump on. And in a sense, that's what it's like to come to believe the Bible. How do you believe the Bible? Well, you have to jump on at some point. You have to jump on the ride. 
And by the end of this talk, I hope the invitation for you there is clear. Have a go and jump on. Taste and see it for yourself. And so what I'll talk about in this talk is out there, uh, is there in the outline. We see the Bible as a handbook of the world. It gives us a way, the eyes, to see this world. It's a manual of life. But we also come to see it as a letter of love. And it is, in fact, the Word of God. And so we'll go through those points. The first one. One of the ways we see the Bible is that it's like a handbook of the world. It, in fact, resonates. As you read the Bible, it resonates with our experience of this world. It makes sense of this world. It makes sense of the history of our world. It is consistent. There's a reformer, John Calvin, famous reformer. He said the Scriptures are like spectacles you put on, glasses you put on, through which you see the world clearly. It makes sense of the world. It is clear. It's consistent. It resonates. Take our experience, for example. The Bible throws light on our experience of this world. The Bible speaks of the world being a place where there is beauty and creativity from the arts to the music, to what we see even in nature. And the Bible says, well, well, that's because God himself is creative. He created this world with creativity, with brilliance, with intelligence, and he made human beings to have that creativity as well. And so when you go and you see the brilliant skills of Michelangelo and the David statue, or you see the brilliant mind, you hear of the brilliant mind of da Vinci, or the symphonies of Beethoven, it is consistent with what we see in Scripture. God made us that way to have creativity, to, to be that brilliant. You see, much of this world reflects the creativity and the, and the beauty of God himself. And so when we read in Scripture, it's meant to resonate, it's meant to make sense of this world. When we read Psalm 104, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. All the earth is full of your creatures. And so that's making a point. God made all the creatures in, its, in all their creative beauty, in the intelligence, in the brilliance. It reflects something of God. It's meant to resonate. It's meant to make sense. When you see nature, you're meant to see there's something so nice, there's so beautiful. It's meant to resonate with the God who made it. I remember feeling this way when I was studying at university. One of my subjects was aerodynamics. And I remember the lecturer speaking about how dolphins, you know, the mammal out at sea, how dolphins are able to swim much faster than their muscles allow them to. They've got muscles in their fluke, they, they can swim fast, but they're able to go much faster than even their muscles allow them to. And that's because of the way their bodies are designed to be so streamlined, to reduce drag. But more than that, they, in fact, shed their flaky skin every two hours, which helps reduce their drag to allow them to swim faster. And I thought when I was studying engineering, you know, I studied engineering for four years, I cannot build a plane. I can make a paper plane. But to consider the design in nature, surely that speaks of creativity, of some brilliant mind behind it. You see, the Bible resonates with our experience of this world. There is an answer for why there's such beauty and creativity. The Bible also resonates with how we see human beings, how we consider and think about the uniqueness of human beings, that there is this 
underlying dignity we feel in being human. Why? Well, the Bible is like the spectacle. It throws light onto that. The Bible, right at the very beginning, Genesis 1, when God created the universe and the world, we read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And so part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to have a unique dignity and worth that is not afforded to the animal kingdom. You see, it makes sense of the world. Humans are different to the animal kingdom. You might say our DNA are similar to however many percent, but we are still different. And the difference is the God-appointed functional difference. Part of being made in image of God means that we are to rule like God, but under God's rule, to rule the world, to care for the world, to love it, to take care of it as we have been commanded. Now, of course, if you look through human history, humans have failed over and over again in taking care of this world. We have failed big time. Wars and fighting and chaos and killing of each other. Human beings have failed over and over again. However, despite all those failings, who is it that still rules the world today? You look at parliament, you don't see monkeys running around, do you? We don't see monkeys, they're human beings. You look at thrones, you don't see donkeys sitting on thrones, still human beings. Why? Because it's, it's appointed by God. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. It's consistent. So what I'm trying to say is that when you read the Bible, it's consistent with our experience. It makes sense. And what happens when you take these principles of the Bible and you apply it to life? Well, you end up with things like... Human rights. You've heard of that, human rights? We all know inherently that there is such a thing as human rights. Human beings have a right. But what are the grounds of those rights? The Bible provides us that grounds. It's because we have been made in the image of God. And we have this sense within us that we are different. There is worth, there is dignity. Human rights, you see, wasn't a part of the ancient pagan world. It wasn't a part of it. Women, children, slaves were not treated with any human rights at all. But it is a Bible thing. It is a Christian thing. It is a God thing. And so when you're those on the merry-go-round, you, you believe the Bible, you believe that this is right. We have been made different, unique in the image of God. And you apply that to our world. It leads to changes that is for the good of civilization. For example, you will have heard of the man William Wilberforce. Remember him? Heard of him? He was a member of parliament. He was an evangelical Christian, which means he's a Bible Christian. He gave himself to see the abolition of slavery in the UK. And under the Slavery, slavery Abolition Act, they in fact even paid out £20 million during that time, which would be billions today, to slave owners, in a sense, to set free the slaves. Because of his conviction, as he put on the glasses of the Bible, it helps him see people are people, they are important, all are made in the image of God despite race. That was the change he brought about. More than that, William Wilberforce, he fought for things like improving the lives of the poor. It comes from a grounding that, that's told us, shown to us in Scripture. 
education reform, ending child labour. And also, he was one of the founders, you may not be aware of this, of RSPCA. Why? Because he's heeding to what God says, take care of the world, even the animals. See, RSPCA was started by a Christian. Another guy who has done much for the world because of this sense of what the Bible says, it resonates with how we are to see human beings, was Henry Dunant, a Christian, in fact, a Calvinist of Switzerland. He was the recipient of the very first Peace Nobel Prize in 1901. Why? Because he was the co-founder of the Red Cross and the Geneva Conventions. What was underlying that conviction? Well, we are made in the image of God. The Bible's teachings about the dignity and the worth of human beings resonates with our experience of the world. We long for it. It makes sense. It's consistent. But then we look around the world and then we also see today suffering, wickedness, evil. Is the Bible also consistent with that? Does the Bible provide an answer to that? You see, whatever worldview you hold to, you have to answer that question. Why is there evil? Can you call it evil? Why is there suffering? Well, the Bible has an answer about evil and suffering. There's a lot that it says, but part of what it says is this. In Matthew 15, For out of the heart, Jesus said, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Now let me ask you, is that consistent with our experience of this world? Much of the chaos and the suffering and the wickedness, where does it stem? It stems from the human heart. Murder begins with hatred in the heart. Adultery begins with lust in the heart. Broken relationships begin with slander or lies or betrayal. It resonates, doesn't it? You see evil, where does it begin? It begins with the heart. Even the global financial crisis in 2007, the root of that was it began in the heart. It was greed. And so the Bible, you see, it's like a handbook of the world. It makes sense. It resonates. And so what this is saying is, you may not believe it yet, but it is saying it's consistent. It, it helps us see the world rightly. It's painting a picture of the world. It resonates. But the Bible is also a historical record of the ancient world, of real times and places and people. Now, many have tried to, in a sense, you know, like the merry-go-round illustration. I'm standing and I'm just watching and I'm just casting stones. I'm saying that's myth, that's legend without even exploring it. Many people do say that. But when we consider archaeological evidence, it all corroborates with what is said in the Bible of the ancient world. There have been over hundreds of discoveries which continue to confirm what we read in the Bible of actual places and people. I'll just share two, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. King David, the greatest king over Israel, most powerful king, lived about 3,000 years old. All that we know about King David comes from the Bible. And so for thousands of years, the only evidence was from the Bible. There wasn't anything outside of that. Even so, it should still be treated as a reliable ancient source. But anyway, 
1966, excavation at Dal Tel Dan at the foothills of Mount Hermon, northern Israel. Archaeologists found a remarkable inscription from the 9th century. It's called the Tel Dan, which is the place to steal. The Armenian king who erected that seal claims to have defeated the king of Israel and the king of the house of David. And so for thousands of years, there was no extra-biblical source identifying the King David. But they found it after thousands of years. It continues to confirm what is there in the Bible. Another example, the Pool of Siloam. This is from the New Testament. According to the Gospel of John, Jesus cured a blind man at the Pool of Siloam. For a long time, they had no idea where this pool was for thousands of years. Until 2004 in June, where city works and excavations were being done, they stumbled across some ancient steps. And then what happened was after further excavation, they revealed, well, that was the pool of Siloam that was there in the Gospel of John 2,000 years ago. That is the, the pool during the Second Temple period. It continues to confirm. And so what this is saying is, it makes sense of the world, but it also is confirmed by what we find in the world, these ancient times, places, and people. And then when we come to the person of Jesus himself, central to the Christian faith, the evidence surrounding the historical person of Jesus, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, it's extraordinary the amount of evidence we have. Because what is said about Jesus... What is claimed about Jesus is historical. You can scrutinize it, you can interrogate it, validate it, and verify it historically. And if it doesn't hold off, then you can cast your stones. But what we find from even extra biblical sources, from records outside the Bible, from prominent historians from the first and second century, there are plenty of them. There are these are three of them. Josephus, a Jewish historian, so not a Christian, he described Jesus and him being crucified by Pontius Pilate. A Roman historian, Tacitus, he mentioned that Jesus Christ undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius. He was a Roman historian. And then you've got Pliny the Younger, a governor from Bithynia. He wrote about how Christians met regularly, sang hymns to Christ as if to a god. And so these are extra-biblical sources that confirm, well, there was a real Jesus in a real time, in a real place. But then you have the Gospels themselves in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, four separate accounts. Eyewitness accounts, two of them were apostles. The others recorded the accounts of other eyewitnesses. And when you compare the Bible, what we have here, people try to dismiss it. You know, you stand on the side, you're casting stones. It's all lies. It's all legend and myths. Well, if you really assess it, the evidence for it is extraordinary. There are so many manuscripts that, that are still in existence today that confirm what we have here in the New Testament. And also, in antiquity, the oldest surviving manuscript of the Bible is very close to the original time. And so... For example, I've got it's a it's a different type of talk, so hopefully this will give you a bit of confidence on why we can trust the Bible. So, for example, Julius Caesar, we all know Julius Caesar, Roman Emperor, 
his Gaelic War, there are only 10 copies of the manuscripts speaking of that. 10. But the earliest manuscript we have is a thousand years after the actual time. A thousand years. We only have 10. Plato. Seven remaining manuscripts of Plato's works. The earliest is about 1,200 years after the original. And so we take them as historical fact. Caesar, Plato, the New Testament about Jesus. There are over 24,000 manuscripts found that we still have today. The oldest surviving is very close to the original, 40 to 90 years to the original. And so that just confirms what we have here is actually reliable. You can depend on it. It is an accurate account of what did take place in the life of Jesus. And so that's the first point. That's a long one. The other is a bit shorter. It's a handbook of the world. It resonates with the world. It's consistent with the world. It's consistent historically. The second one, well, where are we now with the merry-go-round? Well, perhaps we're still standing at a distance. Maybe it's making some sense. Why do some people believe? Well, the invitation now is, in a sense, well, give it a go. Now, what I mean by this is try to live by the principles of the Bible and see if your life is any better. It's a strange invitation. It's like the manual of life. What it teaches about morality, about character, about behavior. Live by it and see if your life is any better because of it. You see, according to Bible, we're made in the image of God, which means we're to be like God in his character. We're not meant to be like the animals. So the Bible talks about us being made in the image of God. We're to reflect the character of God. So because God is the loving God who gives selflessly, sacrificially, for the good of the others, we'll be a far better friend, a far better parent, a far better spouse if we reflect that type of love. If we are gentle and tender like Jesus, in a world of violence and chaos, there is such beauty when you consider the person of Jesus, and you'll be a far better person if you are like Jesus. Or to be forgiving just as God has forgiven us. I mean, that's how relationships are reconciled. Every good marriage, there must be forgiveness. There must be the learning of forgiveness. It's how broken friendships are brought back together, by forgiveness. You live by the principles. It makes sense of life. Or to be honest, truthful, faithful, patient, kind, just like God, it is good for relationships. And the teachings about how friends are to relate, how married couples are to relate, how children are to honour their parents, it makes sense of life. And life is better if we live by it. I mean, if you think about it, would you rather have a neighbourhood where people reflect the character of God or something else? Now, of course, we could say, well, I don't need the Bible to tell me that those are good things, that they are good standards, that they're good behaviours to have. Now, that may be true, that you don't need a Bible to tell you that. But then you have to ask, well, what grounding, what's the foundation for you to say that it is good? Well, what's the grounding for it? But with the Bible, we know it's good because it's reflecting something of God. It's the manual of life. However, we cannot come to the Bible and think it's a rule book. It's a book of rules and laws about how to live. Because if we try to live 
by the standards of God, out of our own willpower, we'll just fail. And that's why you sort of need to get on the merry-go-round to really experience it. It's only when we first experience the love of God that we're able to love like God. It's only when we experience the forgiveness of God that we're able to forgive like God. It's only when our hearts are moved by God that we learn to live like God. And so finally, what you need to do to really believe it is really to jump on, to experience it for yourself. To believe the Bible is in fact to experience God. You see, it's more than a handbook of the world. It's more than a manual to life, how we are to live. It's in fact a personal book from God to humanity. I love how Billy Graham once put it. You remember Billy Graham, the great evangelist. He described the Bible as God's love letter to us. It's brilliant. I like that. It's God's love letter to us. And what we discover on the pages of the Bible, we discover that love we all long for, a love that is unconditional, a love that is never failing, a love that will never abandon us nor forsake us, a love that's even deeper than a husband and wife, a love that's even more tender than that of a mother, a love that's even closer than the closest of friends, a love that only God can give and a love that God has demonstrated. You see, God is saying to the world, in his, in a sense, love letter to the world, I see how sinful you are, how wretched, how broken, how needy you are, how needy more than you ever dare admit, but yet you are more loved and cherished than you could ever believe. I see the worst in you, but I love you still. It's why... At weddings, one of the popular passages at weddings that is read and, and spoken on is 1 John. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loved us to the extent of giving us his son so that we can be brought to God. And so if you are standing on the side watching the merry-go-round and you see these Christians there, their life is a bit different. They're enjoying themselves. Of course, they'll suffer just like you. They will experience difficulties and setbacks and disappointments just like everyone else. But yet for the Christians, as you're observing their life, you see they have this resolve, this groundings, this foundation, this stability. And that's because they have set their lives on the love of God. They believe what the Bible says to them. They've jumped on. They believe it. The words of God are the words of hope, the words of comfort in sorrow, the words of joy in sadness, the words of love from God. It's why in our first reading, Psalm 119, Christians love the word of God because it is God speaking to them personally of his love. They cherish the word of God. In Psalm 119, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. I mean, that's so important. The last one, isn't it? What hope is there for anyone? We hold on to the word of God even to the very end because there is that hope. From handbook of the world to manual of life, 
It's a letter of love. And finally, it's simply the word of God. How do you know? You have to jump on. Taste it for yourself. Read it for yourself. Convince yourself either way. If God is a speaking God, which he is, God is not a statue. He's not made of stone or wood. He's living and ruling. And if God has spoken to humanity, which he has chosen to, and if God has chosen to speak through the prophets and ultimately by his son, which he did, well, if you are still questioning, I think it is worth saying and worth asking yourself, I really owe it to myself to make sure I read it to be confronted by this God on the pages of Scripture, to, in a sense, jump on the ride, have a go. And the course we've been advertising, Christian Explored, have a go. And you may be surprised because belief comes from hearing the Word of God. And so when we read, as, as I end, 2 Timothy 3, All Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That is saying something that is, that is simply audacious. The words of the Bible are breathed out by God, inspired by God. It is self-affirming. If you want to know the mind of God, you, you read the Bible. If you want to know your purpose on earth, you read the Bible. If you want to know how do you how do you get through life with joy and hope and peace? You read the Bible. If you want to know what happens at the end, you read the Bible. It is a circular argument. It has to be that way. It's the merry-go-round. But to experience it, jump on first. And so the question at the beginning, how could anyone believe? Well, those of us who do believe, it's because we have jumped on. We have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good, and these are his words. Let, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, which speaks of your mind and your will, and what we do need for life and salvation. And so for those of us who do have questions, we pray, Lord, that you will answer that, and convict our hearts so that we will jump on and read it for ourselves. And we pray that in doing so, we'll find life and salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.